Every day, 130 Americans die from opioid overdose. Some of us are in invisible prisons today, even as we try to appear free. Sales of alcoholic beverages are up 55% compared to a year ago. I believe God's going to set you free. Welcome, friends, to another episode here on the Recovering Reality Podcast. I am being reacquainted with an old friend of, gosh, it's been, we were talking, what's it been? Nine, eight, nine years, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is my friend, Julianne Thompson. She is in California and... This year celebrated a decade of recovery, right? Woo-woo, yep. <laughs> it, was, it was funny. When I, when I got over 10 years, I, and I actually thought, like, wow, so I was sober for an entire decade? That, that added, like, a whole other, just increased the magnitude. I was like, an entire decade? Wow. Yeah, right? God must be working in my life. <laughs> right. Yep. And you are also a wildland firefighter. Mm-hmm. Sounds extreme. It is. Extreme. It can be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In California, especially where uh, I'm sure anyone listening has read some headlines. I lived in San Diego for just barely under 10 years. And yeah, fires get crazy in California. Mm-hmm. And they are getting crazier. Yeah. And they're, they're revving up right now or have been. It's, it, it comes in seasons. You were telling me the mm-hmm. other day, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's normally May through November, but it's kind of a year-long thing in California now. Oh, it's terrible because California is beautiful. Well, I thought it'd be a good place to start by saying, "How how is it?" I'll let you do it too. How how is it we we met? Where did we, we met at Rainbow Camp? But how is it? What you tell you tell your story of how we met about, I guess would have been, yeah, eight, nine years ago. Um, So I was at Rainbow Conservation Camp, um, which is an inmate firefighting program camp. So I did go to prison, right? Um, I can talk about that in a minute, like how I got there, but uh, there were church services that they put on at the camp for us. And then, um, which every Friday night, you and um, some other awesome people came in and gave us the word. Joel and, and Cindy and Corvaya. Yes. Amazing people. Yes, yes. And some others would come, but yes. Yes, Joel and Cindy. Um, and you guys would come in and we would worship and you guys would just carry the message and um, give us the word and healing. And that's where we met long ago. Yes, it was. I always, I, I did it for about six months and Joel and Cindy, I, I think they did it for gosh, years and years. I think they did it every single Friday night. And I think I went with them for maybe six months, most Fridays, but yeah, I remember that. And I was telling you on the phone the other day, you know, we would come in and I would, having gone through it myself and kind of being on the other side, you would, you would see, I would see the, I would see the girls and I would, you know, you, you pray and hope every single person in the room gets it, but there was maybe two, three of you that I saw consistently where I was like, I'm pretty sure they're going to do real good. And you were one of them. So I'm not surprised that we are having this conversation and you are, you're doing well in central California, right? 
Mm, more like Northern California. Northern. You're in Sacramento, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that is more Northern. Yeah. I was born in San Jose. Oh, okay. Lived there until I was about 10. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I don't really know a tiny bit of your story, but I'm, I'm excited to hear it. Kind of see what got you to the point we met, where you're at now and everything. But uh, let's hear it. Take us on a little journey. One of the things I love to hear is even just like just a snapshot of what it was like sort of growing up. So I feel like that always plays a part of, you know, people going on the path that they go on. But uh, yeah, tell us, tell us a little bit. Tell us, tell us about your journey. Sure. Um, so I guess my upbringing was actually pretty normal. Um, I have great parents. Um, I was raised in the church, so I had kind of a foundation of that, um, of God and and the Bible and the word. And, um, but then as growing up, I guess I kind of always felt like an outcast. Um, I always felt different. Um, I was always very like irritable and stubborn as a child and just discontent, I guess. Um, but I mean, overall, like I had a pretty good, pretty good childhood, like nothing, nothing happened. Um, and then it was, I was 17 when I started drinking. Um, and then once I found alcohol, it was, it was just like, whoa, you know, and I felt cool. I felt like I fit in. Um, you know, I had that liquid courage to just like stay and be whoever mm-hmm. I wanted. Um, and I guess that is where it took me on a journey of, I guess, more so getting lost. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so then I went to college and that's kind of where everything started picking up more because I was on my own. I was living in the dorms, um, going to the parties, you know, just like living a, a, a normal college life, I guess, whatever that looks like. Um, And then that's, I feel like when I started drinking was kind of when I started going away from God, because before that I was going to, um, like the weekly youth group at my church. And I was actually really connected, um, around high school time. But then when I went to college, I never pursued, like, I never found a church. I never found a group or a fellowship that I could connect with. Um, and so it just kind of like fell at the wayside, I guess. So the college years, I would say, are like some of the the most lost years of my life. Um, Just figuring out who I was, you know, like I'm coming into adulthood and like, what does that look like? Um, What are the expectations of me? Um, And so I kind of just got lost into that. And then I was really questioning God at that point. I was Mm -hmm. like, why are you punishing me? Why are bad things happening to me? you know, and I just, I don't know. I just wasn't spiritually connected at that time. Right, and now you're, this is, you grew up in California, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is, uh, what, what year, what years were you in college? Um, 2006 to 2010. 2006, 2010. Okay. And it makes, it just makes so much sense. I've seen it so many times. I, I saw it in my own life, seen it in other people's life where, <clears throat> well, one of the ways that I explain it to people is I say, you know, the, the quickest way to realize how much going to church, praying, being involved in that is benefiting you is seeing what happens in your life as soon as you stop doing it. 
And then you're like, oh, wait a minute. Why is this happening? We have that disconnect from God. I've, I've seen it uh, many, many times in people's lives. And it's, uh, it is, it's that simple as the word you use, the disconnect. And things just start happening in people's lives. And college, you know, you described it well. College is a time where people, you know, it's not, not everyone that drinks a little too much in college, you know, is necessarily an alcoholic. But um, it can often lead into that because college can get real wild. <laughs> so there you are in college. And was it safe to say maybe some like depression, questions, stuff like that's kicking in from all the partying? I don't know. I honestly don't know if I ever was depressed. Um, I just never really knew what was wrong with me um, because mm. I was so discontent all the time. I, I felt like I didn't have a purpose. I didn't know what my purpose was, right? So I felt like I was just a zombie roaming through life day in and day out aimlessly. Um, nothing made sense to me. I was having issues with friends um, and family, you know, just getting into fights or whatever, um, just having really bad connections with people. Um, and, and I, and I even like towards the end of college, this was maybe when I was like 22, early 23, I started going to therapy because I would go to my mom. I would talk to my mom all the time. Like what's wrong with me? I don't know. I feel sad. I, maybe I was depressed. I really don't know. Cause I was never diagnosed, I guess. Sure. Um, <clears throat> but you know, I was, I was trying to go to therapy and, and that just wasn't connecting. I thought I had a chemical imbalance. Um, you know, so then I went to the doctor to check my thyroid. Like I did all these things that I just, I didn't know at the time what it was. Obviously now I know what the, what was missing, like the piece of the puzzle. But at that time I, I had no idea. So I just felt super lost. <clears throat> uh, my, my guess, cause I know the nature of addiction and it's progressive is that, uh, at this point you're describing right now that it, it probably got a little worse before it got better. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I tried all the things, you know, like I tried to control my drinking. I, <laughs> I, I switched from all the types, you know, I like, I went through all the hard alcohols. Like if that was too crazy, okay. I switched to another one or, you know, I switched from hard alcohol to beer, beer. I tried to that wine. with whiskey to vodka. One, I was like, whiskey's mm -hmm. dark. So <laughs> vodka's light. I, actually, that was my thought process at the time I switched and vodka made everything worse. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, and then I, you know, I, I was smoking a lot of weed too at the time. So I dabbled into that and that's where honestly weed is actually where I felt more of, I could see more of the addictive tendencies because I was mm. doing it way more and it was almost like a substitute for the alcohol in a sense. So I was doing towards the end, I was doing that a lot more than I was drinking. Mm. And was there trouble? Were you getting in trouble or was it just you kind of maybe weren't getting arrested in trouble or whatever, but it was just, you know, things weren't good internally? A little bit of both. Yeah. I mean, I never okay. really got seriously in trouble, but yeah, like it started kind of picking up where um, I had a couple close calls. Like I was arrested and released for possession of marijuana. Um, I was arrested kind of for like a drunken public, but it was never put on the books, you know? So like I had these close calls and these, I wish they were wake up calls at the time. Right. Um, 
but I just didn't really heed the warning. <laughs> I didn't really take a look at myself. Um, and so I just kept running with it. Yeah, I can look back at my journey too. And I had many warning signs, <clears throat> many stop signs, many timeouts, <laughs> many whatever we want to call it, a lot of it. You'd think it's really easy for someone who never really had the hooks of addiction in them, if that's the way to say it, to kind of from the sideline, just look and be like, what's wrong with that person? Like, why? You'd think that would get them to stop. You'd think that would get them to change their mind. But for whatever reason, uh, we keep trying. We keep trying mm -hmm. to control it and make it work. Um, well, tell us where, what did leading up to and sort of what did your rock bottom look like? Um, so kind of right before my rock bottom, um, I had kind of picked up drinking a little more. Um, I had gone to Vegas for a week. Um, so that kind of kick-started this partying. I don't know, just partying thing do. about me. <laughs> so I yes. came back and I was just kind of keeping it going. And um there was a couple nights where I was drinking alcohol. And then this one particular night, my thought process was I had to wake up early in the morning for work. I had to be at work at like, I don't know, 3.30 in the morning because I was doing inventory stuff. And early. <laughs> so then I was like, okay, well, if I drink during the day, then I'll sober up enough by the time I go to sleep, I'll be good to go for work. You know, this is how I plan my life around this, right? Mm -hmm. And um, this particular night, I drank, started at 3.30. And then around, I don't know, like 8.30 or 9, I blacked out. I don't remember anything. Um, and there's only a handful of times that when I drank, I blacked out. But for me, whenever I drank, the dangerous part of it was I never knew it was going to happen. I didn't know if I was going to black out. I didn't know if I was going to drive. I didn't know if I was going to get in a fight with a friend, lose my purse, lose my phone, you know, fall over and break my body. Like just, I never knew it was like Russian roulette. And, um, this night I blacked out and I drove, um, still don't remember anything. And, um, I drove probably like 10 miles, I had to guess five to 10 miles. Um, and I ended up hitting a guy on a bicycle. He was riding his bike to work and this was at night. So this was at like nine 30 at night. Um, and I hit him and he died. Um, and I still didn't know what had happened. <clears throat> and this basically was like all gathered from a police report. Like my lawyer had to tell me, um, and I remember specifically, this is kind of when I came to, <clears throat> I was in the Carlsbad Police Department. I lived and... in Carlsbad for a bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> good times, good times. Yeah. Um, and they had to take my blood to get my blood alcohol. And after they did that, that's when they read me my charges. And they told me that my charges were vehicular manslaughter. And, I and was you're like, coming to out of like a blackout, waking up the next morning, whatever, and you're you have no <laughs> recollection. You're in mm -hmm. cuffs, the whole process, whatever. And they're telling you this. Yeah. I knew something yeah. bad had happened, Oof. but I didn't know what. 
um, cause you know, I was being arrested. I, I remember crying, um, and just kind of wanting to escape. Uh, but yeah, so when they read me that I was like, and I, and I, I was actually literally trying to get out of my handcuffs because I wanted to flight. That was my response. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, that was, that was my rock bottom. That's, that was the last time I drank. And then the next morning, that's my first day sober. Wow. You know, I look back at my, I was a blackout drinker. I blacked out a lot <clears throat> and I would drive a lot. And it was very common for me to just wake up the next day and, you know, not know where I was or I was back home and my car was parked in a different place. And I have just zero recollection of the only DUI I ever got. Um, I remember being the last memory I have was like literally in a different town, way on the other side of the town. And then I'm coming to getting pulled over right before I'm about to get on the freeway, which is, I don't even know how many miles, 15 miles from the last place that I, and this was it like, six, seven at night, the busiest time on the roads, you know, and cop pulled me over right before I got on the freeway. And I look back and I'm like, I don't, I don't know how the exact same thing didn't happen to me. I have no idea. I believe the police officer probably saved my life and someone else's that night before I got on the freeway. Cause mm. that, that blacking out thing is, uh, it's crazy. It can be scary too. Cause you just really wake up. You have zero idea what you did. You have no idea, mm-hmm. but you were still doing things. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Man. And even that night, um, <clears throat> I subconsciously had put my seatbelt on because I ended up crashing my car into like a crosswalking pole. Um, but I kept driving from that point. Um, so I fled the scene. So, you know, like that's not good, but I unconsciously did that. Like I wasn't in my right mind. Um, but luckily I had put it on, put on my seatbelt just from habit. And so that possibly saved my life. Um, wow. you know, and yeah. So your first morning sober is, well, still hungover. Your, fir- your first day of, of recovery is, uh, is that. It's a bit of a, well, a big rude awakening. Uh, yeah. I was walking did, out of jail. Right. What uh, so would that, that look like? So, so you immediately began to serve time? Um, no. So I was uh, lucky enough that I was bailed out. Um, so that was kind of a conflicting question of like, well, you know, should we keep her in here and, and help her learn her lesson or should we get her out and see what we can do on the outside? Um, and so, you know, my parents decided to, um, get me out. And so that morning I walked out and my dad was picking me up and I had no shoes, no nothing. Um, and he brought me home and everyone was just sad. Um, I thought it was going to be more of like, how could you do this? You know, you messed up, blah, blah, blah. But they were just worried for me. And that's honestly when like that memory is when I first realized like what unconditional love is like Jesus's and God's unconditional love for us is like, no matter what, you know, God loves us. Even in the worst of the worst, God loves us. And like that, I could see through my parents and my family. Um, they just were, you know, with open arms waiting for me, wanting to care for me. And so. Powerful. Makes me yeah. tear up just you saying it. Cause I could, <laughs> I can think of so many different times where it happened in my life too, where it's like, no, everyone should be giving up on me by now. No, I should not be getting another opportunity. 
I should be, I shouldn't be alive. You know, I can mm-hmm. think back so many times and uh, he just was always there to just say, all right, I love you. You ready yet? <laughs> I know. Just waiting patiently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So it was, it was a hard time for me to accept that because I felt like a murderer. I was identifying with what I had done. That is me. I'm a horrible person. Why am I here? Why is this person not here? I deserve to die, not him. You know? It's heavy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, we obviously know you did get incarcerated. You know, you, mm-hmm. we were talking at the beginning. So what did, how did recovery start to come on the scene? How did, how did healing and actually taking a look at your inner world and doing the work needed to get that right and connection to God, like what did, what did that look like early on facing that? So it was actually suggested by my lawyer. Um, so the insanity of my disease at that point was I still did not connect the fact that this happened because of my alcoholism. Um, I still wasn't identifying with that. So it was suggested by my lawyer to go to AA. Um, I also did this outpatient program. Um, and I think it was the intent was possibly for me to get help, but to also, you know, look better for my case, um, mm-hmm. to see if I can, you know, get some time off or whatever. Um, so at that point, I was willing to do anything. I was desperate to do anything for my case, not for myself, but for my case. And so I started going to AA at that point. And I had actually gone um, with my aunts. My aunts were the ones who took me to my first meeting. And I never knew that they were even in recovery. It was not talked about um, in our family. And so when they took me to a woman's meeting, it was like the most special thing. It was like the coolest experience. And I felt so comforted and, you know, cause it's scary, like going into this unknown and, um, and then it's after be just that, a relief, you're not, you're not alone either. You, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes in the midst of that, you just can believe these lies. Like I'm the only one I'm all by myself and it's just not true. So I could see how that would actually be a really good experience when you go with family. And that's part of the reason why I share my story pretty openly with that, where it sees fit, just because I want people to know that they're not alone. Like, Hey, I'm with you. I'm right there with you too. You know? Um, and so, so that's where my recovery really started taking off. I was going to meetings regularly, um, you know, working the steps, doing all that stuff. And that AA at that time was so powerful because nobody judged me there. People knew, I think, part of my story. Some, most people didn't, but it was a very public thing. It was on the news, in the newspaper, um, all this stuff. Um, but nobody judged me there. Not a, not a one. Um, and that was really powerful to me. And I felt so loved. And that's what I needed at that time. I needed love. I need to be loved before I could love myself kind of thing. Um, I needed to not be judged and just accepted for who I am outside of my circumstances. It's powerful. It is powerful. And it's a good point you make, you know, and I, and I've lived across the country and, and I will say this, that AA helps many, many people, especially early on. I will also say this though, 
not the AA in Southern California is really good. Mm-hmm. It's much better. I've I've been around the country and seen recovery stuff around the country. And, you know, you're going to find what you're looking for anywhere, wherever you go, you're going to find what you're looking for. So you'll find good people. But um, I had the same sort of experience there with mm-hmm. AA in Southern California, because that's where my recovery started. And my experience was it was people who had been through it and they cared and they, they loved me. And mm-hmm. you said it well, you said, you know, loved me before I could love myself. And I needed that too. And I experienced the same thing in, uh, in Southern California. Um, so, but there you are. And my guess is, you know, this, this court case is, is pending sort of hanging over your head and you're beginning to experience some freedom steps and whatnot, and sort of liking it. And then, then what, what happened? Um, I mean, that's kind of where my spiritual foundation really awakened, not really began, but it like reawakened. Um, and I had this acceptance and this peace that I could not understand. You know, I was just like, whatever it is, it will be. Um, and in with AA, I was going to um, my church again. Um, and my church family was awesome as well. Um, I also started going to a small group um, where it was a bunch of younger people. Um, they were slightly older than me, but give or take, you know, a couple of years. And so um, that's where I was getting into the word more. And it really started coming alive to me. Like everything in the Bible never really spoke to me until then. And I was like, oh, I get it. And like so many scriptures were uh, describing my life and describing my experiences and just made a whole, a whole bunch of sense. Um, and then, so by the time I went to prison, I felt spiritually fit, you know, I felt spiritually fit to enter this situation that probably was not very spiritually fit, um, and and entering these institutions, (laughs) Um, with a lot of broken people, you know, like that's how I viewed them. Like I, without, honestly, without the experience that I went through, um, and prison itself, I probably would not be able to sympathize with people that are different than me, um, who have different backgrounds than me. And, um, I just have more compassion for suffering and pain. Like I can really feel that I can actually feel it. Like I know the depth when, when people are going through horrific situations, you know, and I can connect with that. Um, and so I felt like I was going into the situation with a pretty good outlook and, and tools. I had all the tools, you know, um, and then they just pushed me to fire camp. So then I ended up at rainbow out of all places. (laughs) And that, so first of all, I want to touch on this, that I think you mentioned about being able to feel people's pain. It's, I can completely relate to that. There's just, when you've really been through hell on earth and you've come out the other side with God, uh, it really does just increase your compassion because I, I remember what it was like in that spot. It is a, it's not fun. It's, it's a literal prison. It's prison and it's a very painful one. And I, it took me a while to realize that coming out on the other side, it's really a gift. 
because we we can talk to someone that's really been through their that is in hell and we can describe to them exactly how they are feeling Mm -hmm. just to let them know like hey no trust me i've been there and you can come out the other side there's a lot of hope in that i can i can really really relate to that um but then so there you are and you you went straight to the rainbow camp i think i'm not calling the rainbow spot right (laughs) but that was kind of like for good behavior something wasn't it yeah you had to meet certain requirements uh based off of your charges and the amount of time that you had to serve um to be able to qualify to go through this program so so did you qualify or was that just god's grace just putting you straight there how did you just end up straight there um well I, i i actually didn't it took me five months to get to rainbow. So I had to go through the same process as everyone. Um, I had to go to my county jail and then wait at the county jail to get picked up to be shipped off to prison. So then I got shipped off to Chowchilla, um, which is not a very friendly place. I haven't been, Um, but I've heard the name I've heard. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, um, and then you have to wait until you get assessed basically on your, um, level of security. Uh, and then, and then I went to the, the other women's prison where you train for the fire program. And then finally you have to like hike this hike at a certain amount of time and pass these tests in order to then be, be okayed to go to camp. And were you, I think I, I might know the answers already, but were you is this something you wanted to do by fires or were you just seeing it like, Hey, this might be a ticket to get out of here quicker. <laughs> um, that was pretty much the intent to get out quick. Um, right. I knew, I didn't know how much time, well, I knew the percentage. So basically like if you, um, are qualified to do 50% of your time, if you go to fire camp, it gets reduced to, I believe 30%. Um, and I don't know, you know, there's a lot of legal laws that are confusing to people that you know haven't been through the system but um basically by the time that i got to camp my sentence was reduced by 10 months um yeah so but so i i have conflicting feelings or i've had conflicting feelings about that because to be honest the amount of time that i've served um for the for the crime that i committed it doesn't do justice you know so i wrestle with that um, but at the same time I did what the system has in place. Um, I did what I had to do, um, because I was thinking about my family as well. And then, cause they're going through it with me. They, I think suffered more than I did. I was in a survival mode in my head where, you know, I, I had to do certain things to keep my head positive and, um, and to keep staying good. And, so that they knew that I was okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I always love it because I know a lot of people who, who this happened to, but uh, the paradox, you know, you're, you're in prison, you have no freedom and that's where you found freedom. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a powerful, it's a powerful statement to show people like, sure, there are circumstances and environments that are much more conducive to help us get to this place of freedom. But Ultimately, our circumstances and our environment don't dictate what's available for us to to become free. And you know, case in point, you 
you got free while you weren't free. <laughs> yeah. And you know, that's the most wild thing about it too, is, um, so during that experience of being in prison, um, I had a lot of moments where God was showing himself to me. Um, you know, God did for me what I probably wasn't willing to do for myself. And mm -hmm. so he held my hand to that whole thing and showed up like numerous times to, to, to tell me, you know, like you are loved, you are precious to me. And I want you to know that. And so there were so many God moments that some, like now I don't really remember a whole lot of them because it's been quite a while, you know, but he showed up for me tenfold during that whole experience. And I did, I, I felt the freedom um, of addiction. I felt the freedom of the chains within myself. Um, and I felt such hope, peace, love, forgiveness, mercy through this experience where you think you would never feel any of that. <laughs> yes. That's powerful. You know, and I'll just say this about Raymond, you girls, like, you were in the mountains fighting wildfires, like for real. Oh, you, yeah. So yeah, like this isn't, you know, <laughs> oh, there's a brush fire. We just go stand back and, you know, put a hose on it. You girls were fighting real fires in crazy environments. And I remember sometimes you'd come, you'd be getting back right before we got there or uh, other times I remember, uh, I think there was one time we got there and we started and like, you guys had to hurry and leave or something. Like it was kind of always mm -hmm. like, we just hoped you were there because we didn't really know. So they would call and see if you were there. Then we would head up and man, there you are going through all that experience. And all of a sudden you find yourself, what, what was it? What was it like fighting fires in prison? Like, what, what was it like that whole experience? you know, that was also a very powerful experience too. And that's why fire is uh, a very important part of who I am today. Um, because there's a lot of symbolism in fire, you know, fire purifies. Um, mm -hmm. When you climb up those mountains, he's climbing those mountains with you. Um, and you're encouraging others. And like, I would call on God all the time to just give me the strength to get up this hill one foot at a time or get these other ladies. Um, and yeah. I mean, I had, I had no intention of ever becoming a firefighter. That was not my career <laughs> path that I chose. Um, but there was so much power, especially with a crew of women that were doing this hard job. And I felt myself grow and I felt like my captain really believed in me. You know, he believed in my capabilities and he's a really important part of who I am today too, as a worker, as a firefighter, as a person. Um, where he believed in me before I believed in myself. And, and there was a lot of power in that where it manifested and I became, you know, I was on the chainsaw and I was cutting the trees and the brush. And that's one of the hardest jobs it still is one of the hardest jobs even today. Um, I but I, <laughs> thanks for doing it. Cause I don't, <laughs> you know, and, um, it's a tough job, but I called on God a lot during that time to give me the strength. I still do. I still do to this day. I'm like, God, give me the strength, like push me up this hill, um, you know, and then keep us all safe. And I know I'm protected and, and I'm guided all the time. <clears throat> well, I've just a bunch more questions I want to ask you, but for sake of time, <laughs> I mean, it just, that's, that's a crazy job. And if, and if any of you don't 
maybe no, maybe just read headlines or something about the fires <laughs> in California. Like they're no joke. They'll rage out of control and take over an entire region or city. Like when they go, they go. They're wild. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really wild. This year, in the last few years in particular, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, there's just fire behavior that we've never seen. And it's just, it's, you can't underestimate it. You just, sometimes you have to let it do its thing because humans cannot overpower this natural force. Man, have you seen, quick side note, have you seen the movie, uh, True Story about the fire crew and I think it was Arizona? Mm-hmm. Only the Brave? Is, only the Brave. My wife and I watched mm-hmm. that. That's a very powerful movie. And there is a theme of recovery in that movie. I mean, oh, yeah, that's true. There is. I mean, yeah. yeah, there is a theme of recovery in that movie, Only the Brave. Yeah, that's a very powerful movie that'll give anybody that's interested maybe a little bit more insight into what this is like a little bit. It's it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, take us take us through a little bit about what, so you're, you stepped into some very real freedom in the midst of not having freedom. What did, you know, getting out of prison, what did it look like maintaining that personal spiritual freedom once real freedom came? Um, you know, interestingly enough, um, going to the vineyard church services and hearing those worship songs, um, to this day, I go to a church that still sings those same songs. And every time I hear them, I feel the spirit every single time. The same songs that we used to sing up there at Rainbow? Oh, yeah. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so I feel, really, I feel really connected to that church. But um, <clears throat> getting out, uh, it was actually kind of difficult. Um, it was really difficult to reintegrate with normal life um because i it was hard for me to make choices um which is it's weird just it's weird to think about but yeah when you're when you're forced to not have a bunch of choices and you're told what to do you're told how to dress when to eat you know all this stuff um that is actually kind of easy but then when you come into this world there's millions of choices for millions of things and that becomes very overwhelming and so I now understand why people end up going back to prison. That made mm-hmm. me understand that even me, like I'm, I'm not someone that got into trouble and lived that lifestyle, but I could see that it's easy to get back into that lifestyle, um, especially if there is addiction in the picture. And so um, let's see, what did I do after? You know, I stayed really close. A lot of people from my church wrote me. Um, so I was still going back to that church and I was welcomed with open arms. Um, I was still going to meetings and, and kind of, a, a a history of my recovery has been not going to meetings because I couldn't when I was in prison or I never went to meetings every single day. It just wasn't part of my program. And so when I was in prison, I knew that the one thing that I needed to stay connected to was God. That was the one thing that I knew was going to help me stay sober, help me to be better and help me stay grounded. Um, And so reintegrating it, it probably took a little bit, Um, but, you know, I've still stayed on the same path. Like, I don't, I hope I'll never 
disconnect. You know, I can't, I, I guess I can never say never, but um, it's just so, uh, it's so cemented in me as part of who I am. Like I could never deny God. I, I just, it, I, I could not. Like my experience has led me to the point to where I am a hundred percent absolutely all in, you know, and I'm not perfect every day. Okay. Like life gets busy. My job gets busy, but I find ways to talk to people, be of service, share my story, talk about recovery, talk about God, um, anywhere I go, you know, it's not just about going to church one hour or going to a meeting one hour. It's our, our majority of our life is outside in the world, you know? So it's about, you know, letting the car into your lane when you don't really want to. <laughs> yeah. And don't get me started on stuff out on the road, man, especially here in Florida. <laughs> I understand that. It's basically what you're describing is you just, you learned the tools and you use them. Mm-hmm. Use them because the recidivism rate is not good. It's, it's really bad. Actually, I'm sure, you know, um, I'm, I'm finishing my, my first book. I was literally just researching it a couple of days ago and the numbers are bad. They're really bad. And the kind of the way I look at it is that people were given freedom. They served their consequences, but internally they never, they never were free. And if the internal world, uh, those patterns aren't changed, they lead us right back to the exact same place. And I just love hearing these stories because your back was against the wall and you very easily could have been another statistic and mm-hmm. spent the rest of your life in prison, in and out, in and out. It's really unfortunate. A lot of people do, but it's those, mm-hmm. it's, it's that connection to God. It's because you described, you, you described it. You said when you got out, you stayed meetings, your church family stay connected to God these things and those that's a that's a recipe for success right there that's what that is yeah and um I I I really use that time in prison to self-heal because it was really hard to forgive myself it's really easy for me to forgive others but to forgive myself for what I had done I think was the hardest part. So I think when you're talking about um, other people and not being free from themselves, like there's these things that happen in life where we take on these dialogues that we tell ourselves, you know, and that's what keeps us in these chains. And I use that time to really understand who God is, uh, who God was through that experience um, and disassociate essentially like that, what had happened isn't me. I felt like, you know, alcohol had brought me to that place. And that was not who, who Julianne is. That is not who God wanted me to be. And so, um, I learned through who God is and who I am through that. And so when I got out, I, I had felt, I feel like when, once I got out, I had forgiven myself. And so I had that peace and that those chains were left prison (laughs) prophetically speaking that's exactly what happened that's powerful that's that's powerful um touch on that a little bit more if you wouldn't mind as we wrap up here so because i'm talking to you now and the way you're telling the story i can tell you are 
you're healed from it. You know, you're, 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 it doesn't, it's not weighing you down all day, every day. You're, you're forgiven. You're healed from it. You've done the work you needed to do. Um, what was there a, was there a moment that you remember when you were in prison or was there a specific season when you really felt like you were getting past it and getting, getting free from it? Cause that's a, let's, let's just say that's a heavy thing. You know what I mean? That you dealt with. It is. And, but is there, but do you remember maybe a specific encounter or a season of time where you really felt like you were truly forgiven and getting past it? I mean, I think it started where um, my pastor at the time and he was young, so he was easily relatable. And I told him about how I couldn't forgive myself. And this was prior to me going to prison. And this has always stuck with me. <clears throat> he said, I, he asked me if I forgive myself. Um, and I said, no, I don't, I don't know. And he said, well, do you think God forgives you? And I said, yes, because I felt like at that time, um, because I was alive, I was spared. Essentially. I felt, okay, God must forgive me then. Um, and so he said, well, then who are you to not forgive yourself? If God can forgive you, why can't you forgive yourself? Powerful. So then that kind of stuck with me. And so I would always check in with myself, like, okay, why can't I forgive myself? So I don't, I don't really know a specific moment in time, but I just remember being happy. Hmm. I remember being content Good with my life. Um, I was content with the fact that I was in prison. Um, but I was making the best of it and I was building connections with people. Um, I wasn't resisting life. I wasn't resisting anything or anyone. Um, and then, and then a, a really popular scripture, uh, is Jeremiah 29, 11. for I have plans for you, says the Lord plans to prosper you, not to harm you plans for hope and a future. And that's what I really hung on to. I believe 100%. Like if this is, if this is in scripture, this is true. This is truth. So I, I need to be living this. I, I know he has hopes for good. So I'm, I'm good. <laughs> it's powerful. It is. Uh, I, I always think back early on, I, I would ask myself this question. I'm like, how does this God thing work? Because you know, I was passionately seeking God from the very beginning. I can honestly say that. But I, I, would, I would ask myself this question and I'd be like, do I need to believe it and then I experience it or do I need to experience it and then I'll believe it and I kind of but I mine mine was similar in the sense that I I would just read it in the word and there, and I would just say if it's in there it's true and so I need to be experiencing this in my life this needs to become real in my life and there was no I mean even for me we hear people talk about like you know when did you get born again? When were you saved? And so many people know like the date and the time and the church. I don't know. I don't, I really don't. I can't tell you. I could tell you the season of time though, where I began to experience what you're talking about, which was the peace, content, joy, um, the weight of my past, not, you know, like I was carrying it around like a backpack full of boulders. I can tell you the season of time when that began to lift, but I can't tell you the moment. I, I don't know it. I just know that I began to experience the, the reality, the presence of God in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know how I, I know what I did to get there, but I don't know when I got there. That's a good way to say it. 
That's a, that's a good way to say it. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't thank you enough for being willing to come on and, and talk about this and being open. And it's, it's obvious just chatting with you. You're, you're free from it. It's awesome to see. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share um, with others and hopefully they picked up some tools along the way or can relate. Um, Cause I know it's a very, it's a very different story, but we all have our different stories, but there's a lot of similarities within them. What would you say? I like to ask this question sometimes when we're closing. And then I know if anybody is listening and paying attention, they got a whole bunch of it. But what would you what would you say to that person that maybe just got done listening to your story and they're like, that's great for you, I believe it, but it doesn't work like that for me. What would you say to that person who's maybe really discouraged, distant, hopeless, and they can't, you know, they've tried and they can't step into what you've stepped into? What would you say to encourage them? Don't wait until, or like wait until the miracle happens. Like don't give up until the miracle happens because it will. It will. If you if you open your heart to God, He will do things that you could never imagine. Your life will literally be nothing you ever imagined in such a good way. That is very simple and to the point and true. <laughs> Well, and again, thank you for, for what it is you do. I, I mean, I'm just looking at your story from the outside, looking in, and I'm like, yeah, I can see how it's kind of strange how you landed at being a, a wildland fighter, a, a wildland firefighter. That's the official title, right? Yeah, and yep. you're still you're still doing it today. I don't know if we touched on that. Yeah, you're you're still doing this today. You're still fighting fires. And it's, yeah, that's wild to me. Like it, it brought me to a career that helps me be of service. And I've also met some people in recovery along the way. It's a small amount in, in that field. You know, there's probably many people in that, in that field who could be like me. Um, but, you know, I've been able to share my experience within my job as well. And it, it, it gives me just a greater purpose. You know, it continues to fill that. Um, that purpose within me. Awesome. Well, again, thank you. I know many people are going to be encouraged by it. Hopefully. I believe so. Stories are powerful. That's why I have so many people. That's why one of the main reasons I do this, because people hear the stories and they can find themselves in them and be like, oh, wait a minute. If she can do it, I can. If God did it for them, like God did it for that person, he should do it for me, right? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. It's true. Well, it's awesome. And, and thank you guys for joining us here on another episode on the recovering reality podcast. Thanks for joining us on the recovering reality podcast. If you're looking for more recovery resources to help you in your journey, you can access our YouTube channel, a free ebook, our podcast and blogs through recoveringreality.com. You can also connect with us about recovery, coaching, sober companionship or interventions. And if you're looking for treatment for you or a loved one, you can reach out to a very well-respected treatment center called Banyan Treatment Centers at 866-942-8154.